Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 3, as we continue to put the spotlight on God's scandalous grace. <clears throat> and there's a saying that goes something like this, whatever goes around, comes around. You know it, you get bonus points for that, good job. Whatever goes around, comes around. It's uh, the idea that whatever you do, whether it is good or whether it is bad, that thing will eventually come back on you. If you are good, then good will come back on you. If you are bad, well, sooner or later, that bad is going to, to come back on you. <clears throat> We're actually attracted to that, that idea because we tend to think of ourselves as, as better than we actually are and, and certainly better than a lot, of, a lot of evil people and scumbags out there. And so we think, well, they'll get, they'll get the bad stuff and we'll get the good stuff. In Eastern religion, it's known as the, the concept of karma, which is this unbreakable, impersonal law of the cosmos, which essentially says that ultimately you get whatever you deserve. Now, if the law of karma is true, the book of Jonah would be over by now. It would have been over in chapter 1 with Jonah's corpse rotting on the ocean floor being picked apart by, by fish, by predators. He would have gotten what he deserved. You see, Jonah had failed miserably. In chapter 1, the Lord had given him a mission to go to the city of Nineveh, one of the most important cities in the Assyrian Empire, and tell them about God's impending judgment because of their evil. But Jonah hates these people. He wanted nothing to do with Nineveh, and so he bails on God. And in his arrogant defiance, he heads off by boat in the exact opposite direction. And God, in his anger, sends a terrifying storm upon the ocean, and Jonah finds himself hurled overboard into the raging sea. And as he is sinking into the depths, that seems to be karma. What goes around comes around. But as he is drowning, as his life is ebbing away, he calls out to the Lord for help. And the Lord rescues him by sending a great fish to swallow him, and his life is spared. That's not karma. That's grace. And last week, we left Jonah sputtering on the beach, disoriented, disheveled, reeking of fish vomit. And after this fish had thrown him up onto the shore, after three days and three nights in its belly, now the big question for us as we read this book is, where do we go from here? What does God do with His failed servants? Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like a failure. You failed with God. You have failed with other people. You are acutely aware that you fall short of everything that you should be. If that's you, I am really glad that you're here this morning. Because God has a hopeful and powerful word of grace to you in Jonah chapter 3. So please stand with me now. Let's read it together. We stand here at Harbin's Church out of honor and reverence as we get ready to, to receive and meditate on the very words of God. This is Jonah chapter 3. We're going to start at the beginning of the chapter and read the whole thing. God's Word says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, 
Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called out for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from the throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and, and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I stand here before you this morning as somebody who really needs your grace, as I am charged with the the weighty and fearful responsibility of sharing your word with your people this morning. Father, help me in that. Father, the the, the people in this room are are, are weak, and they they come distracted, and they come flawed, and they come with, uh, with brokenness. Father, I pray that you would strengthen my brothers and sisters, to hear your word this morning and to receive it with joy and with gladness, Father, and that you would apply that word to their hearts and to my heart this morning as we, as we meditate on this together. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for what you're about to do through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In Jonah chapter 3, I want us to consider three manifestations of God's grace. And the first thing that we we see in our text today is God's grace to a failed prophet. God's grace to a failed prophet. In the wake of his failure, Jonah recommits himself to taking the mantle of prophet once again and and fulfilling that mission that God gave to him in chapter 1. He says to God in chapter 2, verse 9, but I will, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Now, God could have easily said in that moment, <clears throat> it is too late for you, buddy. You had your chance. Be glad that I rescued you, but don't ever expect to be used by me again. Good luck with the rest of your life, Jonah. I'm done. But he doesn't say that. Instead, look at verse 1 where we'll find some of the most beautiful words in this book. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. I'm so glad that's in the Bible. That's grace. Aren't you glad that God is a God of second chances? Aren't you glad that God doesn't write His servants off when they fail Him? That's often how we treat people. Somebody fails us. Somebody lets us down, we're done with them, and we move on. We write them off. 
And the reason we do that is because often we aren't a people of grace. We are often a people of karma. You do that to me, serves you right to get everything that's coming to you. Have a nice life. I'm done with you. And that's why we're shocked when we come to Jonah chapter 3 and we see how God treats Jonah. God doesn't treat Jonah the way that we treat people. Instead, God accepts Jonah's recommitment and restores him to ministry. Verse 2, God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. Now, how God treats Jonah here reveals to us a very important principle of grace. Namely, that one of the purposes of grace is to release us not from service to God, but to service, to obedience. God rescued Jonah, not for Jonah just to wander off into retirement somewhere and just do his own thing. Jonah already went that route earlier in the book. That didn't work out too well. That was a dead end. Instead, God in His grace rescues Jonah for His redemptive purposes in the world. And that's true for every single Christian in this room. You did not get saved to serve yourself. God saved you to serve others. And what we're learning in our text today, what we're seeing here, is a word of hope to everyone in this room who has disobeyed God, which is everyone in this room. Maybe you have an especially acute sense of awareness of how dreadfully short you've fallen in your obedience to God. One of the things that you can count on is that whenever we fail, and let me stop right there, how how many of you have failed this week? (laughs) All right, if you didn't raise your hand, you failed because you lied. And some of you are like, dude, I failed on the way to church this morning. I failed sitting in the pew just now with my attitude. Whenever we fail... Whenever we fall, beware of the schemes of the devil, the enemy of your soul who loves to come in in that moment of failure and whisper in your ear and tell you that you're done, that God is done with you. I mean, do you really think after what you did, you'll ever be of use to, uh, you'll ever be of use to God or to anyone else again? You have sinned in this way again? Are you kidding me? You have sinned big time. You are a big, fat, lousy failure. God knows what you did. Other people know what you did. You are completely discredited. You've blown it too many times. Your personal ministry is through. You're washed up. It's over. How many of you have ever felt that way before? You feel that you have sinned so much and so greatly and that the sin was so grievous and heinous that you don't believe there is any way you can ever find your way back to a place of useful service and ministry for God. And you look in the mirror, and what do you see? You see the word failure tattooed on your forehead, and that failure defines you. So what's the point in moving on? I wonder if you feel that way sometimes. Maybe some of you feel that way right now. Now, if the universe were governed by an impersonal law of karma, you would be quite right to sink into depression and despair 
and hopelessness. But friends, the universe is not governed by an impersonal law of karma, but by a personal God of grace. We cannot allow ourselves to be defined by our failures. We instead must be defined by the truth of Scripture to the point where when we look in the mirror, we see not failure written across our foreheads. Instead, we see grace. We see grace. And once you see yourself and your reality through the lens of God's grace, everything changes. The Bible is full of fellow failures that God showed grace to and used in mighty ways. One of my favorite examples is the Apostle Peter who denied the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a pretty big one right there. Yet later on, Jesus comes and restores Peter to ministry. And Peter, through the power, through the grace of God, is used mightily in the establishment of the early church. Now, let me be clear on this. My point is, in all this, is not merely that God is a God of second chances. If that was my point, that wouldn't actually be relevant to anyone. And ultimately, it would not be hopeful. How many of you have failed God only once? And all you need is a second chance. Truth be told, Jonah, being a sinner like the rest of us, disobeyed God many times long before Jonah chapter 1. Indeed, he sins again in the next chapter. And Peter himself sinned before and after his sad denial of Christ. But friends, this only underscores the measure and the magnitude of the grace that we need. It's not just grace for one or two failures. We need a constant outpouring of grace, indeed a lifetime full of grace, because we are constantly failing and falling short of being all that we should be. And so our hope, friends, our hope is not to be uh, rested on how successful we feel like we have been in our lives and in our ministries. And we don't, we don't sink into despair because of our failure. Instead, our hope can only be on God's unfailing grace. So if you're here this morning as a Christian, know that God does not treat you according to what you deserve. He treats you according to His grace. And there is no Christian in this room whom God is done using. The moment God is done using you on this earth is the moment you'll be with Him in heaven. And at that point, I promise you, you will not complain. You'll be fine. But until such time, while you are still here, God is determined to use you. It may not be like Jonah where you'll be given the exact same assignment. Sometimes when we fail, God gives us a different role. If you're the church treasurer and you failed by falling into the sin of embezzlement. God will forgive you and restore you to ministry, but, but it will probably be unwise for you to go back into that ministry for various reasons. And by the way, that's not a, we have a great church treasurer, so <laughs> seriously. But no matter how you have failed, it never means that God is done using you that there isn't a ministry for you. When you return to God, you will find that He will have work for you to do for His kingdom. 
When you, were, when you come back to God after running from him, God's, God's not like, oh, sorry, I've run out of assignments now. I guess you can coast for the rest of your life. It's not how it works. He'll always have work for you to do for his kingdom because 2 Corinthians 5.15 is always true, which tells us that Jesus died so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's always true, and that's grace. So we see God's grace to a failed prophet who shows God's grace to a doomed city. That should say city after that. Sorry if that was my fault back there, guys. Shows God's grace to a doomed city. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Text says Nineveh is an exceedingly great city. It was great in size. It was great in political power and influence. It was a major cultural center in the world. It was flourishing in many ways. Nineveh was indeed great. And it was great in evil. The worship of false gods abounded. And we've discussed in prior sermons the barbaric cruelty of the Assyrian Empire. They were people that terrorized their neighbors. They would often invade a territory and just destroy all the people, men, women, and children, and just burn everything to the ground. For Assyria, excuse me, it wasn't just about international dominance and security. This was a people that seemed to delight in bloodshed, leaving pyramids of skulls and impaled victims as they went from town to town. So Nineveh was exceedingly great in many ways, an exceedingly great city. But in the original Hebrew, there's something else about Nineveh that doesn't come through in your English translations. Uh, Literally, it says that Nineveh was exceedingly great to God, to God. In other words, Nineveh is important to God. The people are important. They matter to God. He cares about them, and He loves them, and He has special plans for them. Does it shock you that God has saving purposes for people who are so evil, who are so twisted and depraved? That's why I call this grace a scandalous grace. And I wonder how you and I in our own evangelism and outreach consider people outside the church. Do we view our unsaved neighbors and coworkers and family members as so bad, as so far gone, that they are a hopeless case? And, and do we have a tendency to view unsaved people as merely enemies like Jonah did, or, or as merely projects? Yeah, I shared Christ with them, so now I can put another notch in my Bible. And we depersonalize our neighbors instead of seeing them as people precious in God's sight and who are potential recipients of God's amazing grace. Look with me at verse 4, and notice the first step in the extension of God's grace to Nineveh. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's a pretty short sermon. Some of you are thinking, Deemer, you could use some lessons there from Jonah. That's a short sermon. My homiletics teacher in Bible school would have given me an F for that. It's an eight-word sermon. It's five words in the Hebrew, and it all seems to be bad news. 
But this is the heart of the message. Whatever else he might have said, this is the point, this is the heart of the message. And you may ask, how's that grace? Looks like Jonah's coming into, a, into Nineveh with a message of judgment. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. This kind of language is reminiscent of Genesis 19 and the evil cities of Sodom and Gomorrah where it says the Lord rained down fire upon those cities and overthrew them in judgment. So how is Jonah's message a message of grace? It's grace because to give the people a warning is to give the people the opportunity to turn away from evil and turn towards God in mercy. It's not a message of karma. What goes around comes around. It's a message of grace because embedded in the warning is the implication that mercy is available. That's why Jonah turned down the job in the first place. He got that, and he didn't want them to experience mercy. He knew the implications of going into the city with the message of judgment. In fact, Jonah's message is actually saying more than our English Bibles are saying. Jonah says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's actually a double entendre. On the one hand, that word overthrown can be used in the sense of destruction. That's true. But it's also used in the sense of something being turned around being reversed, being overturned. So, for example, you can look at uh, Psalm uh, 30. You have turned me, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. That word translated turn, that's the same Hebrew word in Jonah chapter 4. The idea there is that I was in mourning and you, God, have, have turned that sad, you have overthrown that sadness and now I have joy. Or Deuteronomy 23, 5. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. Something that was a curse has been overthrown, has been turned back around, has been flipped upside down, and now it's something good. God says to Jonah, you're going to go to Nineveh. You're going to give the message that I tell you to give. And embedded in that message is the threat of judgment but also the promise of hope that Nineveh may be turned upside down, not in destruction, but turned around in direction, changed, flipped about so that good is brought forth from something that was once evil, and that where, the, where wrath was on the horizon, grace is now available. And that is exactly the same kind of message that you and I are to bring to the world today. Like Nineveh, this world is full of evil, It's full of violence, it's full of corruption, it's full of idolatry, it's full of defiant rebellion against God. And we are to declare both the reality of God's judgment and the reality of God's grace. And Jonah's very life was a testimony to both of those things. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus talks about Jonah not demonstrating a sign, but that Jonah himself, through his experience of being in the belly of the great fish, became a sign to the people of Nineveh. Now, the only way that could happen is that if the people of Nineveh were made aware of Jonah's experience. And the most likely way they found out about that was through Jonah himself. And so it seems that in addition to Jonah's preaching of the Word of God, Jonah also shared with them his own personal testimony and experience of God's grace and mercy. 
Jonah himself knew what it was like to be in rebellion against God. And Jonah himself knew what it was like to experience God's anger towards sin and the horror of feeling separated from God and cast away from his presence. As Jonah is overwhelmed by the waters of God's judgment and the terror of facing death itself. Jonah, better than most, understood the biblical principle that the wages of sin is death. But Jonah also knew firsthand of the amazing, saving, sovereign grace of God. Where Jonah, in his most helpless state, deserved nothing but death, was suddenly rescued from death and preserved through the flood of God's judgment, emerging onto dry land three days later and three nights later. Jonah, in his preaching, could say, folks, I know what I'm talking about. I know firsthand about these things. I know that he is a fearsome and terrible judge, and I know that he is mighty to save. And as you and I today share the Word of God with people, as we preach the good news of Christ to the world, we with Jonah can say, I know about these things. I rebelled against God. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Your experience and your testimony is not the gospel, but it illustrates the gospel. If the gospel is true, if it's really true, as opposed to just being some sort of cold academic theory on a page. If the gospel is true, if grace is real, then we should expect to have a personal experience of those things, and so it's more than just words. It's not just academics. This is the real thing. It happened to me. It can happen to you. I'm reminded of David's prayer in Psalm 51 where he confesses his sin and he experiences the amazing grace of God, and that experience fuels his evangelism. He says in Psalm 51, 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And so God in his grace even uses our failures in such a way that when we receive God's grace and mercy, we actually become more equipped to tell other people about it because we've actually tasted that grace and mercy ourselves. You know I'm not saying that's an excuse to sin. Don't even walk away thinking that. Shall we sin all the more so grace can abound? Heaven forbid, but we can and do fall and sin, and we receive God's grace and mercy. And as we become people of grace, we become very equipped and very knowledgeable about the grace of which we speak. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This is, the, this is the biggest miracle in the book of Jonah. It's not the fish. It's not the fish. People get hung up on the fish. This is the biggest miracle. This is the most amazing thing. We have got widespread revival breaking out in this city. <laughs> they believe God. They have faith in God. And this should be of great encouragement to you. The people were not saved because of Jonah's eloquence. The core of his message was only five words. The people were not saved because Jonah was a perfect servant. He just came off the heels of disastrous failure. As we'll see in the next chapter next week, he still has significant sin issues in his own heart. Instead, the people were saved and faith was awakened in their hearts for the same reason that everyone is saved. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. All Jonah did was preach the word and stuff happened. 
Amazing. So many times Christians try to figure out how in the world they will reach the world. And we think sometimes, oh, if if I could just get the music of our church cool enough and hip enough, then we can reach them and we can change them. Or or if if our pastor were just cool enough and clever enough, dream on, Harbins, cool enough, and clever enough and could just be funnier and tell more inspirational stories than then my lost friends and family could come to church and they might be better reached. We can shape our church and our ministries to be more like the world than maybe we can be more effective. But friends, the only thing that will impact the world to, and change the world is when you go into the world and preach God's word to the world. You being nice to your neighbors and waving at them when you take out the garbage isn't going to cut it. I'm not against being nice to your neighbors. You should be. And in fact, Christ-like courtesy to your neighbors can be an entry point into the lives of your neighbors. But once you get that entry point into their lives, the end goal needs to be sharing the Word of God with them because the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's God's Word, not yours, that saves people and changes hearts. The same Word that created the heavens and the earth in the beginning is the word that recreates sinful, hard, rebellious hearts, recreates those into tender, soft, loving, obedient hearts towards God. And so we see this amazing story where God takes this flawed, sinful, rebellious prophet to a flawed, sinful, rebellious people, and he changes a city. And he changes a city. I wonder... I wonder how many failures are in this room. I wonder how many people in this room have been rebellious. How many times you've been hard-hearted towards God. It's amazing what God can use. It's amazing what God can do. Cities change, not because of the greatness of the prophet, not because of the greatness of the people, but because of the greatness of the God of grace working through his preached word. And we're going to see in the following verses the evidences of the power of God's grace working amongst a people. Because if someone really believes God and they've received God's grace, it actually will produce a change. There are lots of people today who claim to believe God, to be Christians, and yet there is absolutely zero change in their lives. And that's impossible, friends. God's grace is not impotent. It actually does something. We we don't see Nineveh just saying, yay, we believe, yay, we receive God's grace, yay, we're saved. Okay, now what village are we going to raid next? When God's grace falls on a people, it always brings about some sort of change. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. That's amazing. This would have been one of the most wicked and brutal men in the world. And he's suddenly acting this way? This is a sign of humble penitence. He strips himself of his glory and dresses like a poor man in the ashes. This is humility. The king is recognizing his own spiritual poverty and bankruptness and need 
This is always part of the path to spiritual restoration. The Bible says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But it's not just that the king is engaging in personal penitence. He's, he's becoming an evangelist himself. Verse 7, And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor, or, nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Now that's interesting. King is calling for a citywide time of prayer and fasting and seeking after God. He even gets the animals involved in this fasting. Not that the animals have done anything wrong. As a matter of fact, in the book of Jonah, the most obedient creature in the book is, is an animal. Fish has more sense to obey God than people do. Animals don't have any sense of moral accountability. Instead, what, what, what's going on here, I think, is, is simply an expression of comprehensive community-wide mourning and repentance. And look what he says next. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. When grace comes upon a people, there is a heart for repentance towards specific sins. And how does the king know that they must turn from violence? It could simply be that the Spirit of God pricked the king's conscience. That's possible. But I think it's more likely that Jonah was preaching in Nineveh about the coming judgment, and, and as he's doing that, he was specific in regards to what the judgment was for. Jonah said, you are a violent people. You've got to turn away from this violence. And folks, as you and I take God's message of grace into the world, we should be very specific in regards to sin and what people need to repent from. Some people say that if we're really preachers of grace, then we shouldn't preach about God's law and and how people have violated it, and yet we never see that in either the Old or the New Testament. Yes, we are to preach faith. People need to have faith in God. But in my own gospel preaching, I never just tell people to believe God because people usually don't know what that means. What does faith actually look like? Well, in addition to believing the promises of God in Scripture in regards to salvation, it also includes believing what God says about how we should live. And the evidence of true belief is repentance. I'm reminded of the ministry of John the Baptist who preached about the coming Christ and people asked him, well, what should we do? And John said to the tax collectors in Luke 3, collect no more than you're authorized to do. And he said to the soldiers, do not extort money and be content with your wages. What was John doing? He was calling for repentance, and he was helping them to understand what that looks like. Or think about Matthew chapter 4, which summarizes Jesus' message as, as saying simply, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or how about Acts chapter 2, after Jesus had died and rose and went to heaven and the apostle Peter is preaching the gospel and the people are in distress and they cry out, what shall we do? What's the very first thing Peter tells them to do? He says, repent. Yes, we are saved through faith and not through works and praise God for that, but works of repentance are one of the ways that genuine faith is made manifest. Uh, The book of James says in chapter 2, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now these people in Nineveh, they really believed God. Everyone has a humble and repentant spirit. They are turning from their sin. But notice that the king realizes something very important. Yes, they need to believe God and have faith in him. 
But the ultimate source of their salvation will not be in their faith, but in the sovereign grace and mercy of God. Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. Notice that the king isn't talking like God's rescue is guaranteed as if God owes them something since they're being good now. There's no sense of entitlement. They're not saying, look at how good I'm repenting, God. They aren't saying, they aren't saying I'm doing this for you, God. Now, now what are you going to do for me? I'm changing, God, so now I deserve this. No, that's, that's karma. And if it's about karma, after all the evil they have done, they might as well be prepared to be vaporized. They have zero hope in themselves and in their efforts. And by the way, that's what saving faith looks like, where your only hope is God's grace, which we see in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Again, God doesn't owe them anything, and Nineveh doesn't deserve anything but destruction. But here we see the heart of God, who loves to show mercy and who delights to respond when sinners humble themselves and call on His name to be saved, because He's a God of grace. As the New Testament says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a wonderful promise that is. Whoever calls will be saved. Have you called on Him? So, We see God's grace to a failed prophet who shows grace to a doomed city, which points to God's grace for the whole world. In the New Testament, we have a scene where Jesus is surrounded by wicked, evil people. Unlike the Ninevites, these people were not plundering villages. They were not torturing people. Instead, they had more in common with church-going folks in the Bible Belt in Georgia. They took pride in how how good they thought they were, and they looked down on others who were not like them. In fact, they felt like they were good enough for God and deserved His favor and deserved His blessing, much like people inside and outside of churches today feel. And despite all that Jesus has done for them and has shown them, the people still ask Jesus for a sign to prove that God is with them. And Jesus says to them that an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Now, the accusation of spiritual adultery, that's Old Testament language. That goes back into the Old Testament. It was used of Israel when the nation was going after false gods and idols. Now, first century Jewish folk weren't bowing down to images of sticks and stones like their ancestors and like the Ninevites, but they nevertheless had idolatrous hearts. And they had recreated God, not physically, but in their own minds, much like Americans do today, they have a God who owes them favor and blessing because they have kept all the right rules and done all the right things. A God who owes them something and is obligated to serve them instead of the other way around. That's idolatry. And it's no better than the Ninevites worshiping a fish god. They ask Jesus for a sign. They're asking, how can we know God is with you? And Jesus turns around and he says, you want a sign? I'm going to give you a sign. It's not the sign you want. It's not the sign that you expect. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. He says in Matthew 12, 40, 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says that what happened to Jonah is really about me. Jonah went underneath the floodwaters of God's judgment. He went down into Sheol, the place of the dead, as Jonah described it in chapter 2. Jesus essentially is saying, I'm going to give you the same sign. Like Jonah, I will be the prophet of God that will be plunged underneath the flood of God's terrible judgment. But I will not wind up in the belly of a great fish. I will be in the heart of the earth. I will be in the tomb because the wages of sin is death. And here's the rub. If karma is true, if what goes around comes around, if you only get what you deserve, then the gospel is not true and there is no hope for any of us because we've all sinned. We all deserve death and hell. The gospel and karma cannot exist in the same universe because while Jonah deserved to drown... Jesus did not deserve to die. While Jonah felt the heavy hand of God's judgment because of his own sins, Jesus, as our substitute, was crushed by God's judgment because of our sins. He did not deserve that. And yet, the prophet Isaiah says, nevertheless, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced Check it out. For our transgressions, what goes around doesn't always come back around. He was crushed for our iniquities. What goes around comes back on him. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. If karma was true, that verse, those verses could not be possible. But instead... We see here that Jesus gets what we deserve. And when we place our trust in Jesus, his death and punishment counts for us. That's not fair. That's grace. As one writer said, karma means you get what you deserve. Grace means Jesus got what you deserve. But it also means that you get what Jesus deserves. And so the Apostle Paul writes and. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. While He got our sin, our punishment, our curse, we get His riches that are the riches that are found in, in being counted as adopted children of God, sons of the kingdom. We receive God's favor we, we receive a glorious inheritance at the end of the age where we will rule and reign over the cosmos and even judge angels. However, even while karma is not true, that does not mean that God is not just. Because all who will refuse God's offer of grace, all who refuse Christ as the all-sufficient payment for their sins, will find themselves paying for their sins themselves in the coming judgment. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, yet 40 years or 60 years or however long you may live, and then you too will face judgment for your sins because God is just. 
Secondly, because God is just, Jesus did not stay dead because he's the only man who ever lived who has not done anything worthy of death. He was not ultimately overwhelmed by the judgment of God, but is instead preserved through that judgment and three days later comes out safely on the other side. As Jonah was like a resurrected prophet who became assigned to Nineveh, so Jesus, the resurrected prophet, who is resurrected for real, becomes a sign to the nations. If you're here this morning and you walked in this room as a non-Christian, as an unbeliever, Jesus will give you no greater sign that he is from God than what he has already given you in the sign of Jonah. And you will ignore that sign at your own peril. Jesus said to his contemporaries a word that actually applies today. He says in Matthew 12, 41, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. If you reject Christ, you will find the accusing finger of ex-fish-worshipping, ex-terrorist Ninevites pointing right at you. Because as twisted and depraved as those people were, they humbled themselves and turned to God for His grace and mercy at the preaching of a sinful, half-digested Jonah. But now, to have the perfect, glorious Christ, after being nailed to a cross, His blood poured out for sinners, risen from the dead, making His appeal to you right now to receive Him, to reject, that is the height of depravity and arrogance. And it is to say, I do not want to stand by grace. I'd rather take my chances and live a karma-like life, getting what I deserve in the end. Friend, don't make that mistake. If you're here this morning already a believer, and you came here today in despair over your failures, tempted to despair over your own sins, wondering if God could ever use you again, The sign of Jonah should remind you that your God isn't a God of karma, but a God of scandalous grace. God never deals with you according to what you deserve. He deals with you according to His grace. And it's not only that you were saved by grace, and grace is just a one-time thing, and then then we're done with grace and we move on to other things. You're not just saved by grace, but your whole life is meant to be enveloped by the grace of God. And we are meant to rely on God, not just for salvation, but also we rely on His grace for working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And my prayer for you echoes what the Apostle Paul said in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He said, Now may may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. You see that? Comfort, hope coming, flowing forth from the grace of God. May that God of grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. God of grace has work for you to do. May He establish you in every good work and in every good word. That is your God.
That is His grace. Receive it. Live by it. Let's pray.